Good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for being in this session. I have set my timer for like 44, 45 minutes when it goes off. Uh, wake some of you up. I apologize for that. Um, but the reason I do that, I do that in class. I, I tend to get started and I lose track of time, and that tells me you've got five minutes to wrap up. So that, that's why that's going to go off. Please don't get up and leave. That's as you're here. You'll be looking for an excuse by then, I'm sure. Thank you for being in this session. Some of you may be in this room because you're gay. And you're wondering if um, um, a white-haired preacher from Tennessee wants to come to town and say demeaning things about you. Or you may be wondering if he wants to affirm and defend the lifestyle that you're either contemplating or have entered into or have been part of for a while. Probably more of you are parents dealing with children or grandchildren or relatives in your family, as I have in mine, who are gay or lesbian or who are same-sex attracted or living in that relationship. Probably more of you are church leaders who are perplexed about how in the world do we help, counsel, have we missed what the text actually says? There is a mound of books being written by um, people saying, we, we just misunderstood those texts for 3,500 years. 2,000 years. And we had insights in the last 50 years or so that are going to let us correct that. Um, others say, well, that's what the text says, but that's not the reality we're living. What in the world are we supposed to do with that? Let me begin by telling you about an incident probably a year, maybe 15 months ago. The parent of a child who has since been described by counselors having gender dysphoria, had been telling mom and dad that born male, he, he thinks he's female, and that he's going to transition. And they tried to have conversations weren't particularly good conversations. They were mostly conversations of angst and tears and anger. And to some degree, I think even maybe threat, you do this, that, the other will do something else. Those didn't help. The parent came to me and said, what do you think about this? And what, what should we tell our child? And my response was to say, well, I think the ink is dry on that. What the Bible says is, is straightforward, straight up, it's clear. And I'm sure the questions that your child is asking is, but have we missed the point of those texts? Have we misinterpreted those texts? And so it actually set me into writing it. I had done some study on it because of crisis situations that I've been trying to help with, but I hadn't had time to do much writing. And so I set about trying to do some writing on it, and out of that writing, Mike said, what do you want to talk about at Pepperdine? I said, maybe I'll talk about this. 
Let's start with the culture. Um, the latest from summer of last year, Gallup polling, a record high 50% of Americans say that they believe the moral status of this country is poor. You read the article in question here uh, by Megan Brennan and Nicole Wilcoxon. They say, and subsequent questions say, and we think it's getting worse. And yet, in trying to analyze their own data, a few days later, an article appeared by Frank Newport, also part of the Gallup organization, about what all that means when you get into the weeds of what their research showed. And Americans have become significantly more open to things to which they were previously closed, ranging from cloning humans to polygamy, as well as broad questions about their views of moral values more generally. Americans' views that each of the following is morally acceptable has increased significantly over the past two decades. Sex between an unmarried man and woman, having a baby outside of marriage, sex between teenagers, and gay or lesbian relations. And while just 23% of Americans say that polygamy is morally acceptable, that's up from 7% in 2003. In essence, Americans are becoming more accepting as far as non-traditional families and sexual behavior are concerned. I don't know how to respond to everything in the culture. In fact, I'm sure I don't. But I bring up the Gallup polling and the cultural findings to begin by saying this. I'm not trying to speak today to our going out and, and picketing and trying to change laws. The earliest Christians operated in an imperial state, the Roman Empire, where they had no influence on the laws. And the laws there is... I'll explain to you, were far more lax than any we know. And when you dealt with situations like Paul did at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, he said, look, our task is not to set the world on its ear. Our task is not to judge the world. Our task is not to picket the empire to change the laws. There is a mood in this country that scares me to death called Christian nationalism that, that a lot of conservative people are caught up in, some folks in churches of Christ. That's not where your energy needs to be. Paul said our task is not to judge the world. Our task is to be an alternate community. He said this is who we must be internally to show the world there is a different way, a better way, a God-honoring way that when lived according to God's will allows you to flourish in a way moving with the cultural currents cannot allow flourishing. So I, I bring up what's going on in the culture to say, number one, the culture doesn't set the norm for the church. Surely we know that. But it's also to say the business of the church is not to find a political party or a political candidate or to go down to uh, the local arena and badger the city council and harangue and, and thump our Bibles on the desk. We're fortunate to live in a situation of a democratic republic where everybody can have a voice heard, but when Christians speak in that environment, we have to speak out of arguments that are palatable to the larger culture, going in and quoting a Bible verse, Bible verse 
doesn't influence a Muslim councilman or an atheist councilwoman. And we function as the body of Christ. And the question that I'm going to try to address in these two days is, what is our responsibility as the body of Christ and what do we say and what do we try to be and do in order to be God's people in a culture that I think has lost its way. Yes, I'm going to represent what will be labeled a traditional view of Christian moral orthodoxy. I do not believe that sex outside of it. In fact, I was challenged by a TV interviewer uh, to go on camera to make some statements about same-sex marriage, this and that, a while back. And I said, well, I'll be glad to affirm Christian purity in the context of marriage, but I'm not concerned to try to kick anybody in the teeth. I want to represent something in a positive way, and yes, I believe things outside of that circle are outside God's will, but I'm more into affirming than I am trying to kick people in the teeth. He said, you mean you're not going to be picketing? And there was a particular issue before city council. I said, oh, no, no, no. I said, I, I don't think that's my business. Well, you're not going to do this at your church? No, we, we're not into that. We're trying to represent to our own people as an alternative community how to be light and life within that community. So I'm going to begin by not quoting a Bible verse, but I'm going to begin just by doing some history and a little bit of linguistics. Because one of the commonest things that I hear is, yes, but those statements in the Bible, Old and New Testament, they were said at a time in a culture and a context where they knew nothing about the kind of loving, committed, same-sex relationships that are allowable for people today. And yes, in those situations of pederasty and rape and pedophilia, we still should say the same things, but they just didn't know about these options, and those texts don't apply. Let's look at it. Sex has been around for a while, and um, I, I, I want to I, I say that the, we haven't found out anything that they didn't know 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, 6, 8, 10,000 years ago. They knew all the permutations that we think we're discovering. That are, sex was not discovered in the 1960s. Um, but there are some ways we can go about talking about this that are off-putting and counterproductive. Of course, anyone just to take a traditional view is sometimes thought to be homophobic and sometimes we do come across as homophobic in trying to defend a traditional value system. Don't tell gay jokes, queer jokes, gay bashing jokes. Don't get caught up into hate speech. Fred Phelps was in Nashville a few years ago, 2003 if I remember correctly. And color photo, above the fold, front page, Nashville, Tennessee, with his sign, God hates fags. His grandson was holding it in an article that sounded like he was there at the invitation of the evangelical Christian community of Nashville, that we brought him to town to help represent our case in a matter that was before the Metro Council. L.H. Hardwick, who was 
the Pentecostal preacher Charles McGowan, a Presbyterian preacher, and I talked with each other. And because Charles knew the editor of the paper, I didn't. We asked for a meeting that afternoon with the editor of the Tennessean. We were granted the meeting. And we went to say, you published something today, I'm sure in good faith, presuming that you represented churches like ours. That doesn't represent who we are. That doesn't represent our beliefs. We are incensed that this man is in town, alleging to speak for people like us. The editor was a member of a, a liberal Christian denomination. She said, oh, I thought all conservative Christians used this sort of language. She said, well, would you like to write an op-ed piece that will appear in tomorrow's paper? Yes. And so the three of us talked. I wrote the op-ed piece, and, and it was published. I'm sure all of us had at times been victimized by the caricature that that's who we are. We can't be that. I was reared in a rural environment. I went to a very conservative Christian school. I'm sure the time has been, and I have apologized and asked God to give me the opportunity to bring forth fruit worthy of repentance, that I've been guilty of some of this sort of stuff. Uh, certainly not violence or excusing. But it was at one of those conservative Christian colleges where a group of us that were tennis playing buddies, four of us were together one night, and one of them confessed to a limited number of experiences and feelings that I didn't understand, had never heard anyone express. I don't know if we were able to help him or not, but we didn't. Abuse him, we didn't castigate him. We loved him, we prayed for him. That was all that we knew to do at the time. He may be in the room, he's had a very successful career in ministry, married with children, and has been a very fruitful laborer in the kingdom. Um, this, this sort of off-putting counterproductive thing, of course, I want to say goes both ways. I don't want to be labeled a bigot for holding a traditional view. You can be bigoted and hold a traditional view, but you can hold a traditional view without being a bigot. Uh, to hold a conservative view about a matter such as divorce is not to be bigoted against people who've been through divorce. And to hold a traditional view about same-sex marriage doesn't make you a bigot. You can be. But you can be cautious not to be. I think the Bible doesn't have clobber texts. I think, I think that's unfair. Uh, to consider anyone who holds a traditional view of bigot, I think that's unfair. To talk about a handful of texts in the Bible as clobber texts, I think that's a rhetorical device. It's a prejudicial device. We don't need to do some things. People on the other side of this discussion don't need to do some things. The only friend of mine pointed out at lunch yesterday, the closest thing he could find to a clobber text is what Jesus says uh, to some self-righteous folks, Matthew 23. Well, I grant you that. There are some prohibited texts in the Bible that are designed to protect marriage, not clobber people who are involved in sexual trysts and relationships that are non-opposite sex marriage. I think there would be a better approach if, in fact, we dealt with LGBTQ persons 
as persons. It's not a topic, it's not a subject. These are persons. And language that would dehumanize or diminish the dignity of those people, that's, that can't be part of our conversation. I'm not particularly pleased with the language welcoming but not affirming. Stan Grins and others made that language popular a number of years ago. Uh, I would like for our churches to be places that are welcoming to all people, whatever their background. Uh, Muslim, atheist, divorced, single, married, same-sex, polygamous, welcoming to hear the gospel, uh, to hear the call of God to all of us, repent and believe the gospel. All of us have places in our lives that first call for repentance before we can hear the message. The part of it that I don't like is, but not affirming, that's designed to say we don't affirm same-sex marriages, same-sex unions, same-sex couplings. But I don't want to be heard as not affirming those persons as persons. They are loved of God. Just as much as any one of us is loved of God and is to be treated with respect because kindness is never inappropriate. To answer the question, is this nature or nurture, my answer is absolutely. <laughs> uh, I, I do believe there are genetic factors at work. I do believe there are predispositions, genetic predispositions in people in all kinds of directions. Uh, I have friends who are diabetics. It's not a moral fault of theirs that they're diabetics. They were born with genetic factors at work. I know people who've had certain kinds of cancers, especially women with breast cancer, that there are genetic factors that predispose them to and make them much more likely to have that kind of cancer. And yes, I believe there are genetic factors in play uh, when it comes to sexual orientation. Uh, nurture certainly has a part of it. There are people who, without that predisposition in certain contexts, will be invited to experiment with, just as all of us at various times in different contexts have been invited to experiment with things that we later have rejected because we think they're inappropriate or outside the will of God. So the, the gospel is a redemptive message, and my concern is to try to present the gospel to people not with the hope that they will learn self-control so much. Yes, I know in Galatians 5, self-control is listed as, as part of the fruit of the Spirit. But I, I, I translate that self-control to mean this. It is an inner sense of control that the Holy Spirit gives you over yourself. It's not, it's not if you gut it up. It's if you lean enough into the power that God provides that you need. All of us have to do that, I presume, in various parts of our spiritual and moral lives. I certainly do. Judgmentalism, just a word about that. Uh, judge not that you be not judged. Anytime this conversation begins, somebody says, well, Christians are not supposed to judge. Well, that's right if you understand what's going on in that. But if that means there are no moral judgments to be passed, uh, Jesus calls some religious folks uh, a brood of vipers, he called Herod Adamus that, that wily fox because of some things he'd done in John 8. He actually said some people who were telling lies about him and who were caught up in a number of lies, he said, your children are the devil. That sounds very <coughs> judgmental. Well, how do you square what Jesus is doing with what Jesus taught? 
Well, the best commentary on Matthew 7, 1, and it's borne out in the six or seven verses that follow there, is John 7, 24. Stop judging by appearances, but instead judge correctly. There, it, it's impossible not to have to pass some moral judgments if you accept the authority of Scripture, because some of the moral judgments are against things that I'm inclined to. And I have to accept the judgment of God and rule. That's something that you have no part in being. That's a divine judgment that I then honor. Don't judge by appearances. Um, this is the sort of thing that people do with sexism and racism and people who are from certain neighborhoods and countries. Don't judge by appearances. But if God has made a judgment, respect that. That's not our personal meanness and judgmentalism. That's honoring the word of God. Going into a little bit of history, I said sex isn't anything new. That, that the ancients knew the kinds of things that, that we know about sex. Scott McKnight, in, in his book, uh, uh, different, uh, A Sense of Difference, he, he distinguishes between what he calls reproductive and recreational sex. I'll use his terms. I think they fit. Recreational sex, I've already mentioned the invitation, especially when people are teens and young adults to experiment with different sexual things. In the ancient world, they certainly did that. In the Roman world, in the Greek world before, brothels were, were not illegal. Brothels were part of the culture. Uh, the public baths, so common in the Roman era, many of them actually were meeting places for, for sexual trysts. Same sex, more often than opposite sex. Prostitution, pederasty, if you don't know the word pederasty, the grooming of, the sexual experiments, uh, sexual uh, experimentation with and relationships between older and younger, usually males. Um, this was an institutionalized way of education in Greek culture. Uh, in, in the elite, maybe the top 5% of Greek culture, a lot of slavery and, and freeborn people who were not among the elites but were wealthy of their culture. The way the young people of these families would be introduced into business, politics, money, and power very often was through parastic relationships. Um, this family and this family, this person who, let's say, is a prominent attorney would accept a child, usually at around age 12 or 13, to groom him women didn't have any opportunities in those fields, to groom him into, in this case, the practice of law. And he would go and live with this person, and there would be an assumed sexual liaison relationship between the two of them. This is so well documented. It's, it's documented in vase painting. It's documented in the famous Warren Cup. I would have reproduced the Warren Cup, but it's just too explicit to put uh, on, on the screen. I'm not arrested. Um, th this, was, this was part of the educational process in ancient Greece. Greece. The Romans did not accept the parastic relationship of Greek culture. They talked, they sort of mocked Greek sex, where older men took younger men as their sexual partners and then worked them into by the time they were 18 or 20, perhaps into their field and, and their business, their law practice. Uh, they made fun of it, but they still practiced it, but not as part of the educational process. 
To them, it was more a stupor. It was a sort of a foolish thing for certain people to do, but it still existed in Roman culture. It was stupor. It was a bit foolish because um, why do it in the educational system? It's just it's an accepted part of the culture, sometimes even within their religious culture. Uh, some of the brothels were actually operated by the Roman gods or goddesses, and you had spiritual union with the god or goddess through sexual union with a priest or priestess, your call, as to which you preferred. Long-term same-sex commitments were part of that culture. Some of them began in Greece in the pederastic relationship. After a series of six, eight, ten years together, they chose not to discontinue the relationship, and they would continue it through their adult years, some of them all the way through to a lifetime. I'll give you a few case studies in a moment. There are any number of them that are well documented. Some of them formed outside those relationships, simply between males who were attracted to each other. In Greek culture especially, beauty was praised wherever it was found. And because men were considered to be of greater worth and dignity than women, men were very often attracted to young males for their beauty, and because of their sexual impulses, they acted out with those younger males and into adult life. Here's what that means. It's, it's so offensive even to explain it to audiences today. But in... Um, Greek culture, let's, let's do Plato for a moment, I know him best. Um, they believed in the transmigration of souls, reincarnation. And the, the ideal between pure spirit and pure matter was to be a male of the human species. If you lived poorly as a male, you might come back in your next incarnation as a female, a woman. A woman is beneath the dignity and standing of a man. If a woman lived well, she might come back as a male. And, and I mean, you, you move through sub-deities and even animal life and their transmigration of souls. So males considered each other worthier people and the purer sex was for a man to have sex with another male. Women were breeding stock. Necessary for the race to stay alive. But the intellectual encounter between males was so much superior, we'll get to it in detail in a moment, that to have a lover who was male was more a symbol of status and stature in Greek culture than simply to have a wife or, or to have a female slave with whom you had sex. And of course, with regard to slavery, in the ancient world, Greek, Roman, Egyptian, whatever, Slaves were living tools. Um, slave was whatever you wanted the slave for. And even if a slave, they couldn't literally legally marry, but if a slave coupled and had two or three children, the man or the wife was still a sexual object for the owner and could be used at any time. Uh, Tom Holland in his book Dominion called this British atheist. But he said, a man would as easily stop by the street and urinate or take a slave and have sex with him or her. Either was simply part of the culture and the system of the Greeks and of the Roman period. And he makes the point that the same Latin verb means to urinate and copulate. Uh, 
was not particularly notable. Out of history, I want to clarify a dis dismissive argument that oh, you've probably heard. Robin Scroggs, all of these will be affirming authors that I'm going to quote. The only model of male homosexuality in Paul's day was pederasty. It's certain that pederasty was the only model in existence in the world at this time. That proposed by 20th century gay liberation movements was, without question, entirely absent. Entirely absent. James Brownson, in the ancient world, such ongoing permanent relationships between persons of the same sex are never documented in the extant literature period. David Gushy, the context is so different that Paul's words are of little relevance to the question of covenanted same-sex relations among devoted Christians. Um, Mark Atzemeyer, the world of the biblical writers, had nothing that remotely resembles the loving egalitarian committed gay marriages and partnerships we know today. We're caring keen, but the biblical authors don't write about the morality of consensual same-sex relationships as we know them today. Um, those statements are inexcusable from people who have access to a library. Um, John Boswell, the late John Boswell, um, a gay activist, um, historian at Yale, in his book Same-Sex Unions in Pre-Modern Europe, he discusses different kinds of homosexual relationships in ancient culture, and in particular he's talking about the, the Roman period. A fourth type of homosexual relationship known in the ancient world consisted of formal unions, that is, publicly recognized relationships entailing some change in status for one or both parties, comparable in this sense to heterosexual marriage. Very seldom called marriage in those cultures because male to male and female to female marriage was not institutionalized. Most marriages weren't institutionalized or registered with the state in antiquity. Certainly no slave or non-elite marriage. But his point is, in terms of what it was, in terms of long-term covenant, he said they existed as homosexual relationships. Cicero, though notoriously straight-laced, persuaded Curio the Elder to honor the debt his son had incurred on behalf of Antonius, to whom the younger Curio was, in Cicero's words, quote, united in a stable and permanent marriage, just as if he'd given him a matron's stola. And a stola is the dress that a woman on the day of her wedding took to indicate her status in the culture. She's, she's now spoken for. She's a married woman. The, the, the curious thing is, affirming writers who are not Christian are at great pains to say, this has been around a long time. Why does anybody bother? But the Greeks knew it, the Romans knew it in, in pre-modern Europe. Same-sex marriages existed. If you come out of a Christian culture, and all of the five that I quoted earlier, they're wanting to say, oh no, this wasn't there. And, and what Paul was talking about, or what the biblical writers were talking about, couldn't be what we're talking about. Um, Cherry-picking on the part of persons who want to step out of history to argue a theological case. You have to argue your theology within history and within the facts. One of the best books that's come out in a while is by Kyle Harper. Harper's not a theologian. Harper is a classicist. Um, history and literature of, of Greek and Roman period. He's at the University of Oklahoma, famous Christian college with a very conservative no, University of Oklahoma, and published by a very conservative press, Harvard University Press, uh, their classics department. The title of his book is From Shame to Sin. 
in the Roman culture, he says there's not a lot that we would call moral stature. He said there are certain things that would either give you status or shame in your culture, stupor and shame within a certain culture. He said Christians came and changed the vocabulary. And a lot of those things in Christian definition became sin. And the specific thing that he talks most about is, is having to do with sexual behavior, <clears throat> and in particular, same-sex behavior. But the most intriguing novelty by far, quoting Harper, is the evidence for male-male marriage in the early empire, early Roman empire. If we had only the extravagant reports about Nero or Heliogabulus, Heliogabulus was a notorious same-sex predator, um, uh, marrying their favorites, we might ascribe it to conventional sensational animus, just political rhetoric, somebody maligning an opponent. Although the extreme and unnecessary level of detail about the ceremonies would be striking. But there's plenty of evidence besides juvenile second satire written sometime in the early second century claims that recently a man of wealth and status was given away in marriage to a man. He imagines that the day is near when male-male marriages will take place publicly and be recorded in the state's registers. This is a classicist, not a Baptist Church of Christ Nazarene preacher. I put together a partial list. The first time someone came to me and said, Rubel, you know, covenant and same-sex relationships were just never there in antiquity. I said, really? I said, I actually did my doctoral work in Greek history, and Plato in particular. Um, let's read the symposium together. We'll get to the symposium in a minute. But I actually began, the first one is 730 BC. That's when the relationship existed. It is written about, not in 730 BC, but it is written about by Aristotle. Now the significance of that is 350, 400 years later, Aristotle is telling a story that is part of Greek literature and lore that celebrates a lifelong commitment between two male lovers that began as a parastic relationship, but they came to love each other so deeply. And by the way, that's another concession I want to make. Can same-sex relationships be loving and devoted? I've known some, but I have no doubt are as loving and devoted as some opposite-sex relationships. And some that have lasted longer than some opposite-sex relationships. The relationship between Philolaus and Diocles was a lifelong relationship that three and a half centuries later is still being told as part of the lore of Greek culture to legitimate same-sex relationships and to praise the ones that are lasting. I won't go through all of this. I don't have time for it. You don't have the patience for it. Um, the sacred band of Thebes. Um, it, Thebes was a particular city where at the tomb of Aeolus, which was presumably the lover of Hercules, somebody says, well, you're getting into Roman legend here, aren't you? Yes. Romans taught values the same way we Americans teach values. Um, through the old McGuffey's readers or the Bible stories we tell in Sunday school or Pinocchio, we, we communicate virtue lessons to our children. Ancient Greeks and Romans taught virtue lessons to their children by the stories of the gods. Zeus, by the way, had numerous same-sex lovers, one Ganymede in particular. The 
everybody was devoted to across time. Hercules and his lover, the male human lover, <coughs> presumably buried at Thebes, this was a place where people from all over the empire would go and at the grave pledge their love and marry each other in the spirit of Hercules and Aeolus. I mentioned, um, oops, I mentioned, um, well, the cult of Sybil was a feature transgender non-binary adult for 400 years that flourished in cities where Paul preached. Uh, in particular, in uh, Plato and the Symposium, uh, I've, I've been to Christian ceremonies, wedding ceremonies, where the preacher read out a symposium to, to bless the married love. Symposium is about gay love, same-sex love. Have you been using that in, in your marriage ceremonies? Rethink it. Pausanias, um, um, Plato's Symposium. Uh, symposium was basically um, a, a feast and a drinking party where, where men, men would get together and they would discuss issues of importance. Might be politics, might be law. In this particular case, uh, Plato tells of a symposium where there were three couples, male couples, who spoke to define and to praise love, eros. One of the couples is a couple that has been in a, whoops, I'm hitting the wrong button. They've been in the same sex relationship, Hysanias and Agathon, for more than 30 years. Their relationship apparently began as a pederastic relationship. It extended into their adult life, and I'll read you from Pausanias in a moment why he chose to ask Agathon to continue the relationship. Pausanias in the symposium says, there are two types of love that men may have for each other. One is the love of common Aphrodite. This is the kind of love that's eager for an orgasm. It's just the love that seeks sensual pleasure. Then he says, by contrast, there is the love of heavenly Aphrodite, one with whom a person wants to spend his entire life as a devoted companion. And the reason it's called heavenly is because it is rooted not in physical acts of orgasmic ecstasy, but in the intellectual pursuit of truth and noble ideas. And he says, you can't do that with a child. You can't do that with a 16-year-old. You can't do that with a 20-year-old. So he says, if at age 30, let's say, you have chosen a child that you're going to broker into uh, a rhetorical school or into the practice of law or into your business, you'll probably have a love of common Aphrodite again and again. That's expected. But he said occasionally, and he said, that happened with my beloved Agathon. Typically, the pederastic relationships would end when the man began to develop pubic hair and beard. The sort of childish beauty begins to fade. 
He said, even as Agathon developed a beard and pubic hair, he became even more lovely to me. Because now, as an, as an emerging adult, he's bright. And the conversations we have are more exciting than some of the orgasms he's given. Lewis Crompton, uh, gay scholar. Pausanias gives the rationale to Athenians for being drawn to post-adolescent males, non-pederastic relationships. No mere eccentric taste, but now, as adult males, they seek pleasure in intellectual conversations and fidelity to one another. See, the typical, typical pederastic model, you, you nurture a boy for a few years, have sexual experience of him, and then when he goes off into his trade, become, develops hair and so on, you find another one. No, fidelity. You decide, I love this person. You say, yeah, but the age extreme. Males and females live that age extreme, like Joseph and Mary in their culture in, the, in ancient days, okay? So to decide, I, I truly love this person and want to maintain a lifelong relationship with them. Continuing Compton, these are men ready to be faithful to their companions and spend their whole lives with them. Pausanias, among others, knows a class of men exclusively devoted to their own sex. Plato and his peers understood the concept of same-sex orientation well. It's as well documented in their art as in their literature. I put descriptive bands in appropriate places. This, this is from a museum in Oxford, England. Fairly typical of a pederastic relationship. What does the beard say? Older person. What does the, on the right, non-beard, smaller body say? Youth, boy. That's typical pederastic plate or vase scene. There are hundreds of these known and in museums. This one is in the Getty Museum just down the street. This one is of two young men. Notice that you, you always tell the facial hair or lock up. Oops. This is the scene of two older men. This, th these can be multiplied again and again. Greek based paintings, the Roman based paintings are more um, red on black, almost stick figures. But it continues not with this kind of detail and artistic expression in the Roman period. So it's not only documented in literature, but it's documented in the art of the period. Paul has more to say in a culture where these experiences were known. More about morality in general and sex in particular than any of the other New Testament writers. Wouldn't you expect that? Paul's the apostle to Bates. He's the apostle of the pagans. Corinth and Rome, he was not working principally with Jewish audiences who knew scripture. He was talking with pagans, and he had to educate them about the things that Jewish people had been taught from childhood about what was appropriate, that, that marriage is God's provision for sexuality, and that sex outside that is not within his will, and certainly same-sex relationships are not. Yeah, but Jesus didn't say anything against same-sex intimacy. Well, he didn't say anything about a lot of subjects. 
not because they weren't important subjects or that they would name sinful behaviors, but every Jewish boy and girl was being taught this growing up. Yeah, Paul says more about it because he's talking to people who didn't know it. Jesus assumes a lot, or did he say something about it? In Mark 7, Jesus said, you're worried that you're eating unclean food. He says, it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your heart, things like porneia. Porneia is the Greek word that means sex outside covenanted marriage, and marriage for Jesus would not have been same-sex relationships. I'm not sure he didn't speak about it in a presumptive way in that text. And I, I think in Matthew 5, 17, when he says, in the sermon on that, look, I'm not here to abolish the Torah. I'm here to tell you, you better not break the commandments of the Torah. Uh, and, and not a jot or a tittle passes away. And tomorrow we'll look at Torah. The Torah is very explicit about same-sex relationships. And it wasn't pederastic relationships. It was same-sex relationships, period. In the Bible, the issue is the action. It's really not the context, whether it's short or long time. Some things simply go against God's creative created design. Quickly as we end then in that Pauline material, I can do it quickly because you know the biblical text. After his theme verse in 16 and 17 that the gospel is God's power to save you first and also the Gentile, Paul indicts all of humanity starting at 118 through 329 saying look what the pagans knew just, just intuitively about God they suppressed. And what the Jews were given by, by revelation from God in Torah and the prophets, they disobeyed it. So what's the conclusion? Everybody needs the gospel. Jew and Gentile alike, we're all sinners. And with particular attention to the pagans going back to that first section, rejecting the creator God produces an inevitable rejection of his design. And, and order. And so that's where he discusses same-sex behavior. He said here, and, and I do think it's, it's one of 22, but it's the one he dwells on. And I think it's because that one was so notorious and public in the culture. And would have been, among all of the others, uh, perhaps most directly needed for Paul to address among that non-Jewish audience. Did it really take 3,500 years to see that we misunderstood those passages? Jesus corrected some misunderstandings that people had in his day. Uh, if, if that, why didn't he correct that? Or why didn't Paul do us a favor and correct it? Because it, it stands. That's, that's what was... And finally, just quickly... Don't you know that wrongdoers won't inherit the kingdom of God? Don't we deceive? Neither the sexually immoral, the pornoid word gets here, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor many have sex with men. There's that disputed word, arsenikoitai. Um, the footnote in the NIV says the words men who have sex with men translate two Greek words that refer to the passive and active participants in homosexual acts. The malakoi, the soft ones. Um, these sometimes were prostitutes who offered themselves for anal sex. In Roman culture, that was not an honorable thing to be, to be the, the passive partner, to be a penetrated partner. 
Um, the arsenic quartile would be those uh, aggressive, active partners who are the penetrators. There's debate as to whether it was as morally um, uh, diminished for the Malakoi as, as we tend to assume, but uh, th that's what they're saying. These are the two Greek words, the penetrators and the penetrated uh, men who have sex with men. And he uses that same word in 1 Timothy 1.9. Um, we know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers, rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers for murderers, sexually immoral, pornea, for those practicing homosexuality. Well, so you say, well, if pornea includes it, why single it out? Paul creates a new word. That word arson and poitai is not found in any Greek literature until Paul uses it, coins the word. Almost surely out of the Septuagint of Leviticus 18 and 20 that we'll look at tomorrow um, from Moise Silva's New International Dictionary, New Testament uh, Theology and Exegesis. This compound word, arsenicoites, not attested prior to the New Testament, occurs twice in the Pauline Corpus, and only twice in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6 9, list of those excluded from the kingdom. 1 Timothy 1.10, list of acts condemned by the law. The reference is clearly to someone who practices homosexuality based on, this is the Leviticus 18 passage, out of um, the uh, original context of not sleeping with a man in the bed of a woman, same language being used in, in 2013. Paul is very clear, and I took a lot of time with the history to say, and he knew the historical context to say, yes, we know about prostitution, we know about rape, we know about rape as an instrument of war, but we know about same-sex committed relationships. And he says, look, men have sex with men. This goes against the created order of God. And it's that created order that's rooted in Genesis that we're going to talk about tomorrow. Uh, so Paul, with a, a vocabulary for all sorts of sexual words, feels compelled to create a specific word that says, you know, let's talk about the thing that's common to the pagans, but that the Jewish people would never consider because our texts have already dead with it, dealt with it. I close with Luke Timothy Johnson. Luke Timothy Johnson's a Catholic scholar, Emory University. He and I talked about this an, an hour together. I have a little patience. This is, by the way, from an article in Commonweal, which is a Catholic magazine. I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says, but what are we to do with what the text says? Okay, the text says it's wrong. I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal to the way of our own experience and the experience that thousands of, others, uh, thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is to fact accept the way in which God's created us. By doing so, we explicitly reject as well the premises of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality, namely that it's a vice freely chosen, a symptom of human corruption and disobedience to God's created order. I don't think the text says this. Doesn't necessarily say it's freely chosen, just say it happens, and it should. We're going to begin with that statement tomorrow, where he says, look, the biblical statements are clear. The Bible says it's wrong. 
is there a way to say, but the Bible can be amended internally? He says there is. We'll explore it tomorrow. See if it makes any sense to you. Thank you for being here. Mike, I apologize for stealing two minutes from your time. Thank you for being here.